Unfuck the Poor, Chapter 9, Only Villains, Part 3. When we left off, we just learned that the minimum wage in Mexico is $6.53 per day. Now, if you are an American smart person of the conservative persuasion who doesn't really like to acknowledge that poor people are poor and that we keep them that way, you might say, well, the cost of living in Mexico is much lower than it is in the States, so $6.53 per day is probably plenty. But a 2018 study estimated that 42% of the Mexican population lived in poverty. Compare that to America's 11.4%. And even the very smart analysis of the differences in cost of living kind of falls flat. It becomes untenable to argue that, all things being equal, $6.53 is a living wage. And with that, we'll pick up where we left off. The cheapness of Mexican manufacturing is nothing short of imposed poverty for the 6.5 million Mexican workers earning minimum wage. Even a 20% wage increase by President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador only raised the minimum wage to 123.22 pesos per day, or $6.53 per day. But promise of employment, even the near $1 billion investment from firms like Constellation, does not have the implied benefits of reducing or restricting undocumented migration. Again, the influx of U.S. dollars is primarily beneficial to U.S. firms, and there is an industry name for them, Maquiladoras, defined as foreign-owned companies that export products duty and tariff-free, and the actual expenditures are hyper-localized in heavily industrial cities like Jalisco, Guanajuato, Pueblo, and it is crucial to note that in ethnographic surveys of Mexican immigrants, younger working-age males from these industrial cities make up the bulk of U.S.-bound immigrants. If you move to the big city looking for work because your local agricultural gig has been undermined by commercial agriculture, but in the big city you can't find work, then where do you go? If the $6.53 a day you make in Mexico keeps you in poverty, a raise of nearly nine times your daily earnings simply by relocating to the U.S. becomes quite attractive. The blame, as positive by the I'm not racist but brand of racism, is to be placed on the Mexican immigrant by a factor of two. One, the loss of jobs and imbalance of trade is placed on the underhandedness of the Mexican government itself, which speaks to the fundamental character of the Mexican population and our beliefs about who our southern neighbors are. And two, that generalized belief about the fundamental character of the Mexican population can be attributed to the character of all Latinx populations, making their presence in our country without documentation criminal by both matter of law and character. We have made the working poor, with little to no prospect of survival in their home countries, criminals by location. They are criminals in their own country for what they do to the U.S. and to each other, and they become de facto criminals by crossing our shared border. This is not my interpretation of American attitudes towards Latinx immigrants. As a matter of observation, Americans regularly target them in disparaging, hateful, and criminal language. Neil Bortz, anti-immigrant talk radio host on WSBA in Atlanta on June 18, 2007, said, quote, I don't care if Mexicans pile up against that fence, just run a couple of taco trucks up and down the line, end quote. Brian James, anti-immigrant talk radio host with KFYIAM in Phoenix, suggesting a solution to the immigration problem in Arizona while filling in for the regular host in March of 2006, quote, what we'll do is randomly pick one night every week where we kill whoever crosses the border. Step over there and you die. You get to decide whether it's your lucky night or not. 
I think that would be more fun. End quote. Pat Buchanan on August 23, 2006 said, quote, They are not assimilated into America. Many Hispanics, as a matter of fact, you know what culture they are assimilating to? The rap culture, the crime culture, anti-cops, all the rest of it. End quote. Rush Limbaugh on why a Mexican national won the New York Marathon on January 26, 1992, said, quote, An immigration agent chased him for the last 10 miles. End quote. Congressman Paul Brown, Republican from Georgia's District 10, was quoted in the Huffington Post on March 22, 2013, saying, quote, I've had a long discussion with some of my members who are getting soft on the issue. These illegal aliens are criminals, and we need to treat them as such. I'm not in favor of giving amnesty to anybody who has broken the law, end quote. Congressman Blake Farenthold, Congressman Blake Farenthold, representing Texas's 27th District, said on CNN on June 18, 2012, quote, You're also talking about people that came over at 16 years of age. At that point, they had a say in it, and that looks kind of more like amnesty. They're certainly in a position to have a conversation with their parents about it, end quote. Virginia Fox, a Republican from North Carolina's 5th District, was quoted in the Statesville Record and Landmark on June 9, 2010, as having had this exchange on a radio show, quote, My problem is with immigration, said a caller named Dana, except I wouldn't even call it immigration. I'd call it an invasion. Dana went on to say that the present situation qualifies as such because people are coming here from other countries and taking advantage of U.S. social programs and taking jobs from Americans. I agree with you, Fox said. A caller named Leslie said she is troubled by, quote, seeing all these illegals streamlining into the country from Mexico and Afghanistan. She wondered how many of them are terrorists. Lessie said a solution would be to use a dragnet and round them all up. Fox told Lessie the sentiments she expressed are very much in the majority. End quote. NBC Latino on July 23, 2013, recounted this story about Steve King, Republican from Iowa's 4th District. Quote, Iowa conservative Republican Congressman Steve King said in an interview with Newsmax that for every valedictorian dreamer who has been brought to this country by his or her family, there's another 100 out there who they weigh 130 pounds and they've got calves the size of cantaloupes because they're hauling 75 pounds of marijuana across the desert. Those people would be legalized with the same act. End quote. And Donald Trump, well, you know what? Nah, he, he can say this shit himself. I like Mexico. I love the Mexican people. I do business with the Mexican people. But you have people coming through the border that are from all over, and they're bad. They're really bad. You have people coming in, and I'm not just saying Mexicans, I'm talking about people that are from all over that are killers and rapists. I mean, they're coming into this country. Let me talk to you about that for one second. The, The government of Mexico called those comments prejudicial and absurd. That was Donald Trump on trade, healthcare, and more in a CNN interview with Jake Tapper from June 28, 2015. And who could forget Trump's comments when he announced his bid for presidency on June 16, 2015. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. And then a few weeks later, Donald Trump said to Don Lemon on CNN on July 1, 2015. Oh, well, if you look at the statistics of people coming, I didn't say about Mexico, I say the illegal immigrants. You look at the statistics on rape on crime, on everything, coming in illegally into this country, they're mind-boggling. Somebody's doing the raping, Don. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, somebody's doing the, just saying it's women being raped. Well, who's doing the raping? 
Mm-hmm. Who's doing the raping? Yeah. I mean, how can you say such a thing? Black and brown villains, indigenous villains, and immigrant villains are easy targets for politicians and racists in general, who need someone on whom economic blame needs to be placed, made poor and, in some cases, desperate by global economic policy, Actions of self-preservation are not seen as natural human responses to oppression. They are seen as the criminal impulse innate within entire populations of others. An American couldn't survive on $6.53 a day, even considering the cost of living difference. But Latin Americans should have to, because to grant them dignified wages would be to grant them the humanity we fervently withhold from them for purposes of cheap electronics, automobiles, coffee, and bananas. Of course, You and I are decent people. We wouldn't admit flat out that we wish to deprive humans of their fundamental rights to living wages and dignified work, and not being detained and forced to work overtime. That would be murderously sociopathic, psychopathic even. Equally, we can rely on the thinking of mainstream economists, those who garner accolades and prizes for their inside-the-box thinking by going nitty-gritty into established economic theories, to tell us what's happening as a result of economic principles in practice isn't really what's happening. It is a convenience of geographical and cultural distance that we can ignore an event like the Chiapas uprising in the entire discussion of free trade policy as economic strategy, though free trade is arguably the exact thing affecting the lives of the indigenous Maya Tzatzil. Does the U.S. really lose in any economic transaction if it has the power to inject and withdraw money from other countries' economies as a matter of sport and without regard to the impact on those countries' citizens? With a minimum wage that keeps the United States' lowest earners in poverty, it is telling that we consistently blame nations earning a fraction of U.S. poverty wages for domestic inequalities. To blame the actual perpetrators of institutionalized poverty for their role in global inequality would be to question our entire frame of reality. It would mean that we have villainized the poor for the crime of being affected by economic policies that make them poor. And it would mean that we have acted in defense of those who work to keep them, and us, poor. It would mean that we have a villain of our own that we are seemingly powerless to combat, the corporation. This concludes Unfuck the Poor, Chapter 9, Only Villains, Part 3, and the entire chapter for that matter. And, well, actually, you know what? We have a little bit extra time, so you know what? Bonus chapter. Unfuck the Poor, bonus chapter. Balance of payments and capital flows. Krugman and Wells end their Intro to Economics textbook with a final chapter on open economy macroeconomics, which we've actually already discussed in great detail. Quote, the open economy version of the loanable funds model helps us understand international capital flows in terms of the supply and demand for funds, but what underlies differences across countries in the supply and demand for funds? Why, in the absence of international capital flows, would interest rates differ internationally, creating an incentive for international capital flows? End quote. The answer, as we've addressed, is the liberalization of emerging markets and something about how Deadpool is Marvel canon but it relies on X-Men to be relevant while X-Men stands alone, something like that. So, nice try, Krugman and Wells. And I'm I'm just fucking with you again. There is no way I would write a whole ass chapter with the title Balance of Payment and Capital Flows. The real chapter 10 is up next, and it's titled... Oh, bitch, bitch, bitch!